we're going out live right now over Rumble. We're going out live right now over Facebook. Welcome. Let's let's talk a little bit about what's going on with the Sam Bankman-Fried FTX scandal. Like, what the hell, guys? A massive, massive scandal. And we have some insight into it because about six months ago, I interviewed Ronnie Goldman, who wrote the book The Star Chamber of Stanford on the Secret Trial of a Stanford Law Fellow. And his two major antagonists were Sam Bankman-Fried's parents, Barbara Fried, and Joe Bank review too, where you know she saw essentially nothing of value uh, in it. Just found it found it you know ponderous and repetitive and and, and whatnot. So yeah. it goes it goes it goes back and forth. Uh, but you know I mean, assuming you know it, it, and, and likewise. Uh, so he's talking here about his time at Stanford Law School. As to the specific gaslighting contentions, I've had um, intelligent people who were readily persuaded of my claims. I've had intelligent people who are completely uh, met intelligent people who are completely dismissive of my claims, and you know all sorts of people. In between those, and so they're sort of you know you go back and forth. Uh, you know, am I crazy or am I not? Uh, am, am I saying anything original or am I not? So I, I, I assume that experience is uh, some version of that experience is you know pretty pretty common for most uh, artist types. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now let's talk about some of the, the lead characters and the, the number one character in the book, from my understanding, is Barbara Freed. So yeah. Who is Barbara Freed? Well, you know, she was she was uh, uh, one of the two professors in one of the uh, classes I took my last year at Stanford, and. Um, she, you know, she clearly liked my work, and she was the one who offered the fellowship. So that's why, you know, she is, in a sense, the main, uh, the main character, and also designed the most email communications uh, from her. So, you know, I, and this is something that I, I try to uh, emphasize. You know, I'm not attacking anyone personally. No, I'm not. They're all, you know, nice. Okay, so Barbara Freed is the mother of Sam Bankman Freed, and she published an op-ed back in 2013, right, where. She shreds the philosophy of personal responsibility. So she argued in 2013, the philosophy of personal responsibility has ruined criminal justice and economic policy. All right. This is the mother of Sam Bankman Freed of FDX. Right. She's a Stanford law professor. She said it's time for Americans to ditch the philosophy of personal responsibility. So she was on the Democratic Super PAC Mind the Gap. She was the board of directors chair. And she penned this 2013 essay published in Boston Review arguing that it's time for Americans to ditch the philosophy of personal responsibility. It's time to move past blame, guys. Philosophy of personal responsibility has ruined criminal justice <clears throat> and economic policy. All right. She wants harm reduction policies such as rehabilitation instead of incarceration. And she says public reactions to wrongdoing have uh, have been studied extensively. We need to listen to the peer-reviewed experts. And the more information people have about the context of a crime, the person who committed it, the circumstances that that person came from, the more nuanced are their views of moral responsibility. So to know all essentially is to forgive all, to use that old French phrase. 
that we alter our judgments of blame as we acquire greater knowledge of the person and the context in which she acted should put to rest any thought that our blaming practices are naturally immutable or even recalcitrant. And she says that harm reduction policy is not to coddle criminals or deny their accountability. It is to reduce future harm at a tolerable cost to all of us, wrongdoers including by influencing wrongdoers' future choices through rehabilitation, more carefully calibrated deterrence, and when necessary, isolation from society. She says, we have got nothing from our 40-year blame fest except the guilty pleasure of reproaching others for acts that, but for the grace of God or luck or social or biological forces, we might well have committed ourselves. Interesting, she talks about the power of biological forces. It, it would be nice to have you know, a lot more people investigating the power of biological forces. So let me send an invite to Duvid here. These nice people who are committed to their chosen profession, no question of that. But but you know, I am I am critiquing the norms of that uh, profession as they were embodied in these uh, in these in these people. So yeah, so I sort of do seize upon her as kind of a a, a paradigm case of certain academic uh, pathologies. Um, not hard to do because you wouldn't be successful if you didn't have those pathologies to one degree or or another. Um, you know, and uh, so I have uh, I have certain. You wouldn't be successful if you didn't have these pathologies, right? So some of these pathologies. That, that might make for success, all right? Okay, they, they also make for absolute disasters for society. And so Sam Bankman fried he disasters. was awesome. Thank you, thank you, Luke. He was you know, a major player in philanthropy and you know, he was you know, trying to do all these good works, major donor to the, to the Democratic Party. And he was he was clearly running a scam. Uh, send an invite here to Duvid. Right? Do, do people who don't have these pathologies are they as equally cut out for success? Because a large part of success usually is getting along with other people and speaking the language. You know, that of her worldview, but I think on, on, on that side, I also uh, acknowledge uh, certain of her, her virtues, namely that she kind of. From words that she said, you know, said she has a certain prophetic uh, prescience. Uh, so, you know, I, I think she had an intuitive sense that this conflict was there, and and was and, and Joe as as well. They had, they had a certain intuitive sense of this conflict. And they thought it could be managed, and it, it couldn't be. But I, I I think they. So the Joe here is Joe Bankman. All right, that's the father of Sam Bankman-Fried. All right, so both Barbara and Joe are Stanford law professors. Notwithstanding how things turn out, I think that. And they are the major antagonists in Ronnie Goldman's story at Stanford. And he wrote a memoir about it, the Star Chamber of Stanford on the secret trial of a Stanford law fellow. Both she and, uh, and Joe saw a, uh, a certain uh, potential in me, which uh, a lot of others uh, didn't. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for, for that, though, you know, that potential could not unfold, unfold according to the rules which they had uh, prescribed and, uh, and hence the conflict. Now, how do you think, in a safe space, uh, Barbara Freed would talk about her experience with you? How would she describe it? Well, look, people move on with their lives. So, you know, when, you know, Josh Cohn responded, you know, uh, uh, he had a good enough opinion of me, but I left no, you know, lasting in, impression. That's perfectly fine with me because people move on with their, their lives and there's absolutely no, you know, no reason why they, this many years later, would really have, uh, you know, any strong feelings about me one way or the other. Maybe whether they'll have strong feelings about the, the, the publication of the book. Is, is 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 something else? I don't I don't know, but yeah, I I, I wouldn't expect uh, her or anyone else. Uh, I would expect me to be very important to them to, to any of them. 
uh, because they have the right to move on with their lives. But of course, I have the right not to move on with my life, you know, also, which describes why I have been clinging to this experience and seeking to articulate it for so many years. Yeah. Yes, I was Ronnie Goldman ahead of the curve. Was he warning us about something that we should be aware of? This is Anthony Scaramucci. Skybridge Capital founder, a CNBC contributor, uh, and somebody who had sold part of his business to Sam Bankman-Fried. Anthony, it's great to see you, sir. Well, I would say it's good to be here, but it's a you know concerning day, Andrew, uh, and there's a lot of distress in the markets, and a lot of my friends think it's the worst week in crypto in cryptocurrency history. Well, let's talk about that and let's talk about the, the ramifications of it. But, but first, on a very personal basis, you spent some time with Sam recently. What happened? So this is from 10 days ago. Well, you know, listen, I spent a lot of time with him, actually. We, we traveled to the Middle East. Uh, this is before these revelations were exposed. Uh, we were embarking upon helping him fundraise. He had, you know, he had purchased 30 percent of my business. And so as good citizens, we were we were trying to help him around the world when the crisis hit over the weekend. Uh, I made a unilateral decision to fly down to the Bahamas on Tuesday uh, in the spirit of helping. And so you, you caught what Brian was saying there. Uh, the original idea was this is a rescue finance situation. Uh, and could we somehow help, uh, which would obviously help the entire industry. And then when I got to the Bahamas, it became clear, at least from some of the people that worked on the legal team uh, and the compliance team, that perhaps there was more going on than it being a rescue situation. Uh, so when I left the Bahamas in the afternoon, I was actually distressed. I don't want to call it fraud at this moment because that's actually a legal term uh, and none of us know. Uh, and we have to leave it up to the regulators. And we also have to give people, everybody, a presumption of innocence. Uh, but I have to tell you, I'm distressed about it. I don't like it for the industry. And I would implore Sam and his family. Uh, he has two wonderful parents, uh, uh, Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed. I would implore them to tell the truth to their investors, get to the bottom of it, stop 22 tweets uh, but get there, get themselves in front of a regulator and explain exactly what happened. Uh, and if there was fraud, let's clean it up to the extent possible and repair the accounts at FTX. For myself, I'll be working on buying back my equity um, and restoring that. Uh, the good news for Skybridge investors, we had no assets on custody there. We thought that was a potential conflict of interest. And so we were saved that way. Uh, but the bad news is, uh, and, I, and, I, and I'll say this very candidly to everybody, I liked and like and trusted Sam. And uh, Duvid, uh, what's going on, Duvid? Okay, Duvid, how you doing? Hey, Brook Hashem. Brook Hashem, Brook Hashem. So uh, what, what's, new, what's new by you? Uh, nothing much. I'm just listing books on my eBay. And have you paid any attention to this uh, Sam Bankman-Fried FTX meltdown and uh, Ronnie Goldman, right? He, he wrote, wrote a memoir about uh, dealing with Sam Bankman-Fried's parents. You know, I didn't put that together till you just mentioned it. Yeah, Sam Bankman, FTX is probably the main story that I'm following right now. You know, since it came out, I've been, uh, you're reading basically everything I could find on it. You're watching videos. Maybe I even have my own theories on it. Okay, so what are you thinking? Um, well, there's the conspiracy theories, because obviously we don't know that much information. And I didn't put together you know, the Roni Goldman connection, because I didn't read that book of his. Uh I did look, uh, you know, watch your video, but I, I didn't put it together that that was his parents. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my 
prediction is that there's a pretty large conspiracy going on and uh you know he's probably just going to be the fall guy without us uh figuring out uh too much information you know there's also the ellison gensler collect uh connection and uh you know the involvement of his parents is hard to tell whether uh it was set up as a scam the whole time, whether they're getting kickbacks from uh, the Democratic Party, uh, whether his father, uh, you know, helped them out. You know, I know he like provided some of his legal advice, uh, some of his r- original connections. So, uh, yeah, I'd say it's more speculation because there, there's not much facts that we could, uh, you know, pull out of it. But uh, you're certainly ripe for conspiracy theories. Now, you've been following it. What what? drew your attention to this story um you i i I never invested in crypto i follow crypto a little bit and uh you know god forbid i think i think uh it's just going to be the major story like i think that there's probably a lot of people involved and it's just it's interesting because you you keep on wanting to check back the news and see if there's going to be more information you know i think uh you probably over over a million people are going to lose significant amounts of money, and uh, God forbid, I, it probably also the majority of the people involved are probably also Jewish. And you said uh, Ronnie Goldman's going to come on your show, or who's who's talking to Ronnie Goldman? I was asking you, like when oh. you were first doing it, may, I, I thought maybe yeah. you were going to bring him on he was going to yeah, give yeah. some special insight is that the same law school that has like the palestinian uh protest where they supposedly like uh you aren't allowing jews to speak or zionists to speak at clubs or it's a different law school i'm i'm not sure um, did you hear those national i mean that, that made the national news over and over again like it was probably overdone by anti-Semitism watchdogs, but, uh, you know, saying like a Jew free space, whereas really just a few student clubs that made an agreement not to invite uh, pro-Israel speakers. But, uh, and I know the, you know, it's probably a hotbed for anti-Zionism at the same time, a huge over-representation of uh, Jews. I mean, have you analyzed the the Jewish angle? I mean, certainly none of these people are Orthodox uh, you know, a handful of his partners may be uh, non-Jews, but uh, you know, it appears, God forbid, most of the names involved are, are Jews. You know, like Gensler, uh, Ellison's, uh, you know, her father, the MIT professor, uh, you, you know, the Berkeley, the Democrat uh, fundraising arm. It's funny. I, I was just showing a week in review. The New York Times still hasn't taken down uh, November 30th their big uh, annual conference that has uh, Netanyahu. Zuckerberg, uh, Janet Yellen, um, Zelensky, and uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, so if you check the New York Times for their advertisement for that event, they uh, haven't removed Bankman-Fried. Well, obviously, the more you have in common with people, the better you're likely to get along. So it makes sense that there are Jewish affinity networks. Also, if you speak in a similar sense, all right, there's a way that elites speak, there's a way that people who go to elite universities speak. And so if you have that education in how to speak like a member of the upper class with the right you know, social political values, you're going to do much better 
as you, you know, try to navigate your way through the, the rich and powerful. So affinity networks and uh, cultural ties and uh, similar worldviews and uh, similar vocabulary, similar ways of speaking, all these things that kind of bind people together and make them make people comfortable with each other. It, it makes sense that those who have that, say, elite university education and you know, maybe have that, that secular Jewish identity, secular liberal Jewish identity in common, uh, more likely to do business together. Yeah, probably an optimism, even though they're probably atheistic circles, that uh, and a lot of times I'll use this argument against atheists of this hope that uh, the good guys are going to win, their perspective of what a good guy is, even uh, you know, from the perspective that you've talked about, uh, um, hero what you call it, the hero, hero systems, hero systems, yeah, hero systems, where Jews would be gullible to think that Bankman Freed might be the hero that fits their hero system. So it's like, oh, you know, this Jewish guy is, uh, you know, just so smart that he's making all this money, and uh, and he's you know basically a good guy. He doesn't really need all that money, and he's going to give the money to the right systems. And even though you're know, not like an orthodox view of uh, who succeeds and them being rewarded by God, but some sort of hero system where Bankman Freed was the hero that they were looking for and the hero that they could believe somehow was going to beat the system and then, uh, you know, send a lifeline out and uh, donate to their charity and their causes and, uh, you know, support the Democrats and uh, all these various institutes. What do you think about the idea that makes sense to me that we all need a hero system. We all need some way of transcending our own insignificance by attaching ourselves to something transcendent, whether it's science, the, the pursuit of truth, the pursuit of beauty, the pursuit of, of God, that uh, having having a hero system is essentially a biological necessity. Um, I mean, if you're going to say it's a biological necessity, you would require biological evidence so you know as opposed to psychological or philosophical um you know some sort of like genetic or neurological wiring and then if you're if you took an atheistic view um you say like no hero systems are false and it's a remnant of belief systems so if you're an atheist uh you know there are no heroes uh you're like benjamin franklin uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely uh, and uh, I mean, I, I would tend to agree with you, but uh, I'm not sure I would make it a biological argument, might make it a spiritual argument. And then if you did have atheistic leanings, that you would probably want to root out your tendency to believe in heroes and uh, you know, even a Judaic view of uh, the Yates or Hora, Yates or Tov. All people are fallible. All people make mistakes. There's no such things as hero. It's just a human weakness to want to believe in them. All right, let me. So the idea of hero systems comes from Ernest Becker and his classic work, The Denial of Death. So he says the way that we go about denying death is by striving for the heroic, that we take part in activities which lead us to believe that we're something more than just our physical body, that, that we're participating in something that will go on past our physical death and therefore grant us a form of immortality. So artists and writers feel like they can achieve this type of immortality through the creation of great work that they hope will affect people long after their death. But what about the great masses of people, the, the mediocre 
who are incapable of personally achieving the heroic like an artist, how are they able to fulfill their urge to heroism? And so Ernest Becker says society acts as the vehicle in which the vast majority of people act out their urge for heroism. So in our culture, especially in modern times, the heroic may seem too big for us or we too small for it. Tell a young man that he is entitled to be a hero and he will blush. So we disguise our struggle for the heroic by piling up figures in a bank account or reflecting privately on our heroic sense of worth or by having a better home than our friend or our neighbor, a bigger car, brighter children. But underneath all these strivings for the heroic throbs the ache of cosmic specialness, no matter how we mask it in concerns of smaller scope, so that we deny death by becoming fully absorbed in our social role, whether it's as a, a sportsman, as a do-gooder, as a comic, as a hard worker, as a family man. So we strive for whatever one's group deems most desirable. So this will frequently be money, fame, status, right? And so society is a hero system. Society is a living myth about the significance of human life. It is a defiant creation of meaning. Any thoughts on that description of a hero system? You know, I, I generally agree with it. Um, and, you know, it's been insightful. Like I would mentioned the Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. Um, you know, ironically, Taylor Swift, if I was also, I've also been following that story, you know, where her most popular song in the world now is called Antihero. Uh, but I think I would generally dispute that, that like heroes are for the weak. Heroes are a fallacy. So it's true that we seek out heroes. There's the natural motive. Heroes fill that uh, social and psychological function. But in essence, they're a fallacy. I might even relate it as a derivative to the question of evil and uh, what I would call karma, the Hindu term, but uh, the Judaic conception of uh, Maimonides' 13 principles, you know, like uh, you know, we reviewed in um, Mark Shapiro, that the righteous get rewarded and the wicked get punished. So you see like a hero as the righteous person who gets rewarded. Um, but from a, a non-theistic point of view, there's no reason to assume that the righteous get rewarded and the wicked get punished. And people have a natural tendency, I think, to be skeptical, especially about uh, success and wealth and heroes. You know, I think like, you know, Taylor Swift or, for, you know, example like that, uh, is she the example of the righteous being rewarded? And, uh, you know, people are like, oh, probably not that you're like, but, you know, so why is she the most famous person in the world right now? Um, does it have anything to do with uh, righteousness? So that natural tendency to believe that there's a connection between doing good things and being rewarded and doing bad things and being punished leads into this creation of heroes like you know like uh um what's the name of the author you said you were reading from again uh ernest becker yeah ernest becker so i mean he lays it out pretty well i'm not sure if you agree with me that you're saying it's essentially a fallacy to uh related to the uh belief that the righteous get rewarded and the wicked get punished Right. Well, the, the hero system in, in Ernest Becker's thought is not so much about having heroes. It's finding a way to be heroic yourself. So some people will get their sense of the heroic from taking care of their family, 
Other people will get the sense of heroic by volunteering. Other people will get the sense of heroic from the work that they do. Uh, other people get a sense of heroic from being a part of a religion or being part of a particular people. And I, I don't think it's necessary to believe that the righteous are rewarded and the evil are punished, but it certainly helps. Right? From Becker divorces it from fame and um, you know, excessive uh, achievement. That I mean, typically people look at you know, think of heroes as people who have excessively achieved. You know, so like Sam Bankman-Fried obviously gave more charity than uh, you know almost anybody else because he had the means to do it to be a hero like that. But he just talked like your everyday hero, and to normalize the hero, uh, which is sensical and makes sense. But at the same time, you know, Becker is killing the hero idea by saying that uh, you know anyone could be a hero. Well, everyone needs to feel like a hero. That's what what he's saying. And so, I, I, I mean, there are shows that I do, and afterwards I feel heroic, or even during them, I, I feel heroic. I get a considerable amount of my meaning and purpose from doing live streams. I, I'm sure you've you've been very satisfied with with some of your live streams, and and you know felt heroic that you you said something that was unique. I mean, you often say things that I've I've never heard anywhere else. So I sent, I'm sure that you, like me, get you know, some of your sense of self and some of your sense of a purpose and mission and doing something you know, good in life from your participation in live streams. Is that fair? Yeah, but then you're getting more back towards my hero conception as opposed to Becker, where it's dependent upon exceptional achievement, where you know, presumably you feel better about your live streaming when you have success and you know the type of success that makes you special as opposed to the average person who you know doesn't have the reach of thousands of people that's not a published offer that uh, you know never uh, you know could have had them doing the things that you did so to say as opposed to you're saying you know if nobody tuned in you're just talking to a handful of people would that still be a hero system like in the becker sense yeah it would be like if i don't know if you've ever i've done live streams that very few people watched, so maybe only 80 people ever watched them, but I thought they were good, that, that I am pleased with the the things that I said on that live stream, and so I do feel a sense of, of heroism that, uh, you know, I said something important, uh, whether or not the, the world recognizes it right now. I, I, I did something heroic. Now, it's easier to feel heroic if you're doing doing a live stream where 3,000 people are watching live, 1,000 people or 500 people. But if, if you do good work, if you, if you write a good essay and, and nobody else acknowledges it, but you enjoy reading it, then I still think it's, it's very, very easy to feel a sense of the heroic. So I'll often read something that I've written on my blog, and even if nobody else tells me it's good, if I laugh when I read it, if I if I look at it in a new browser and go through and read what I've written and I think, oh yeah, that's strong. That makes sense. These, these are good points. Then, then I get a sense of the heroic and I'm, you know, I'm probably vastly exaggerating the importance and the heroism of what I'm doing, but that, that kind of serves us, you know, it gives us a sense of confidence and it gives us a sense of the heroic, even though it's you know, vastly out of touch with, with reality. 
So as long as we don't get drunk on it, as long as we don't abuse other people on it, as long as we don't uh, become antisocial or you know, wreck our lives over it because we have this overly intoxicated view of the importance of what we're saying on a live stream, uh, having an exaggerated sense of the importance of what you do on a live stream with very few viewers, uh, I still think that gives one a sense of the heroic. You know, I, I get with Church of Entropy on Weekend Review, we always get into these circular arguments about the meaning of words. And I mentioned uh, you know, my grandfather's grandfather, who was a rabbi, was a philologist in Germany, the, you know, the, fil- the field of word study, and I like doing etymology. Um, but I mean, it seems that Becker is destroying the historical meaning of hero, which means spectacular achievement, even the demigod, where a hero is someone who displays godlike qualities, where a person would think that maybe this person isn't a mere mortal, but uh, is, is uh, you know, a demigod. And, uh, you know, so I mean, I appreciate the postmodernism. And I don't know if Becker's in the school of postmodernism. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not, uh, you know, like, I, I could understand egalitarianism. And, uh, you know, I probably am you know, largely an egalitarian, but uh, I like the classic meaning of hero, and uh, so I, I I don't like the way Becker's doing. Um, you know, like uh, I think it's you know it's like IQ, not you know like if everyone could be a genius, genius doesn't mean anything. If anyone could be a hero, hero doesn't mean anything. Hero uh, demands spectacular achievement. You know, so much so that uh, people be like, well, I'm just a mere mortal. I could never do that. That person must be must be a god. And, uh, you know, what drives me is, like, I'm, I'm not denigrating what you said, and I agree with you. You could find meaning and have achievement in, uh, you know, like uh, my rabbi said, uh, small things make big people. But, uh, you know, I assume, like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe you're, uh, you know, a few years older than me, where, uh, but uh, even in my middle age, I still want to achieve spectacular things. And I want the classical definition of a hero where I'm not just going to be a hero from, you know, finding her heroness in my uh, uh, banality, but uh, I'm actually going to achieve spectacular things that uh, other people won't be able to achieve or even fathom how it was achievable by a mere mortal. Right. But, but think about people with a 100 IQ or God forbid, lower than a 100 IQ. Think about how many of them get their primary sense of meaning in life from being a sports fan that they sort of, they they vicariously feel that they're heroic because their team wins a game or their politician wins a game. So I don't know if you've known any intense sports fans. It generally speaking seems to be the more intense the sports fan, the more empty their life. And so I just remember a stage in my life when nothing was going right except the Dallas Cowboys were winning, my favorite football team. And that kind of got me through about, four months because the rest of my life was in absolute shambles. So I don't know if if you've had that experience, but I noticed in real life, the more intense person's fandom, like the more emotionally elevated or destroyed they are by the performance of their team, the more empty the person's life. Yeah. I mean, I I always feel detached, so I never felt connected to, you know, certainly a sports team or, or, you know, possibly like Judaism, Hasidism, 
um, you know, more involved with like Chabad. It's like, oh, Chabad is winning, or you know, Judaism is winning, Israel is winning. Even that, I've always felt largely detached, and uh, you know, not like other people's wins or my wins. And uh, yeah, I put it that, like I think I found out when I was small that that's really just a fallacy that uh, it, it doesn't benefit you. Uh, you know, it's a false sense of uh, something. You say, okay, yeah, people need to uh, cling on to something. They need meaning, and they can find meaning by group identity, by attaching themselves to uh, a larger purpose. And then, then when that purpose wins, you know, kind of like Judaism in general, where you know most Jews, like uh, you know, a loss for the Jews is uh, you know, painful to us. Like you know, like any act of anti-Semitism or vandalism or anything it's just like oh no like i'm personally hurt um but the, you know at the same time uh you know when jews win it's uh you know it makes us feel good uh but i think that's a fallacy and a weakness and so i could appreciate like people need the weakness they need the crutch uh but in essence that's all it is and you know saying uh you know, like the john lennon uh a working class hero like if you want to be a hero then just follow me. And that's kind of an anti-hero song. Uh, but, but saying like, no, I want to be a hero in order to achieve hero dumb. Um, I'll take mentorship. I'll apprentice under heroes, but I'm not going to have the fallacy of sharing the glory with someone else. When the reality is like, there's really nothing to share. There's no benefit to me. It's, you know, I'll say it's, it's, it's largely all fake. Uh, so you're not disregarding the psychological importance to it. I was walking on uh, Bondi Beach the other day wearing a yarmulke, and this uh, couple came up and said, Shalom Aleichem. They were from Oak Park. They were they were Froome Jews from Oak Park. Uh, Michigan. Yeah, Oak Park, Michigan. So I think that's relatively near you. Even the young Israel near my house, there was a couple that moved from Australia a few years ago. Um only the one i could think of but uh you know there might be some interplay and in, uh you know there's thousands of orthodox jews in oak park uh you know said that uh even to, in the young israel near my house house there's a couple that moved from australia now do you do you consciously give yourself an exaggerated sense of heroism just to to feel better to feel stronger to, to feel more more confident and and do you simultaneously know that you're building yourself? So I do. Like I give myself an exaggerated sense of heroism when I'm doing a live stream. I I usually impute more importance to what I'm doing than than is really there because that gives me more energy, more excitement, more confidence in what I'm doing. Uh, at the same time, a part of me is kind of standing back and realizing, yeah, I'm I'm giving this an exaggerated sense of importance. So do, do you consciously give yourself? exaggerated senses of importance when you're performing in a live stream or writing a blog post or are you always detached? Yeah, I'm pretty much always detached and I could be somewhat objective about the level of achievement um, and you know, maybe like in chess or something because I put a level where you know, I reached expertise or you know, I was playing big tournaments and I was the winner, hundreds of people played and I came out on top or, or even having a uh, you know, high ranking on the scoreboard. Uh, but you know, to put it in perspective, like it didn't make me a hero, uh, your possibility of mental gifts or just, that's what I worked on. Um, 
you know, like in Perky Elvos, if you put the work in, you get the result. Uh, and then somewhat being objective, you know, saying like, okay, you know, Adam Green called me up. I was on his show th- this week. Uh, I had Forex Shark to talk about, uh, you know, FTX on Week in Review, got the most views, almost 3,000 views. We had o- over 200 uh, viewers, highest view Church of Entropy ever had, um, you know, from our usual like 10 to 20. And, uh, you know, I hadn't been on a big stream. So, you know, Adam Green uh, wanted to review uh, the Ari Shafir Jew comedy. And uh, you had like 300 viewers. Uh, But I I would say pretty objective about it. Even, you know, the times where I've had success or failure, just, uh, you know, say, well, you know, I'm a man of numbers and science and say, you know, there's a theory of expertise. There's human achievement that uh, I might be on, uh, you know, the far end of the bell curve for certain matters of human achievement. And, uh, you know, I think I'd mentioned, uh, you know, God forbid, Rabbi Balkany, the brother-in-law of uh, Ravashkin, uh, you know, who uh, went to prison and he had went to prison and, and uh, you know, he had probably been the most famous rabbi in America for a period of time. He almost was made the rabbinic chaplain of the whole Senate. He had a weekly appointment with uh uh, George Bush, uh, for for years, you know, uh, you know, go on, but you said that one one moment of honor, uh, of of pride could be your downfall, and uh, you know, God forbid, he, uh, uh, you know, had a downfall, went to prison, and uh, you know, God forbid, probably pretty much a broken man, with uh, you know, not in, and and uh, so you know, I, I always recognize that that glorious fleeting, and to uh, you know, be detached from it and have some sort of objective assessment. Like you're there in Hollywood, you know, like, so even if you've got hundreds of streamers, you're a published author, um, that you could, uh, you objectively look at your level of achievement, place yourself on the bell curve, uh, compare yourself to people that have achieved far more than you. And then even, uh, you know, accurately assess, okay, in this realm, maybe you've achieved into the 99th percentile. Um, you know, so maybe you've had some luck or, or maybe that's just, uh, you know, in relation to the work that you put into it and uh, remain detached and objective about it. Hmm. And have you rejoined the Jewish community or are you still isolated from it? Yeah, I haven't started going back to synagogue yet. I, I, I'm not sure, you know, like I, I probably should just pop in, you know, start going Shabbos morning again, but I haven't done it yet. I started coaching chess. They called me at the Detroit Institute of Art uh, the in Detroit. Uh, he asked me to help out again. So I've, I've been uh, coaching at a local high school. Um, you're like, God forbid, two and a half miles from my house. It's There's not a single white in the whole high school. Uh, you know, the percentage is some 90-some percent black. Uh, maybe, I'm not sure what the non-black is, but 0% white. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I feel pretty confident about my chess. So I went in there and uh, been coaching their chess team and then going to the Detroit uh, Institute of Arts and uh, coaching chess again, almost all African-American. God forbid, uh, you know, the downtown synagogue, the the rabbi came out with, uh, you know, kind of like Michigan had the ballot proposal for abortion and came out like, uh, you know, like as a Jew, as a rabbi, it's very important to protect the right to choose. And, uh, you know, they've taken a pretty hard turn to the left, so I'm not sure if I'll 
you know, if I'll, if I'll go there again, they don't even have regular services. Uh, so I don't even know what to go there for. But, uh, yeah, I keep on meaning to start going Shabbos morning to my local Young Israel, but uh, I, I still haven't brought myself to do it yet. Is that synagogue you're talking about that came out for the right to abortion? Is that an Orthodox synagogue? No, that's the Detroit, the, you know, downtown liberal synagogue. I mean, I tried to make an Orthodox minion, and then it got taken over by, uh, you know, the elective process to uh, a reformed progressive synagogue, and they hired a, a female rabbi, and uh, I still continue to work with them, and then, and then they raised millions of dollars to uh, raise a building. Um, but that's, the Young Israel is the only synagogue uh, within walking distance from my house. And you've trimmed your beard. Yeah, well, I actually burnt my beard using the Rebbe Nachman method, like the Kabbalistic uh, fear that cutting your beard with a razor is uh, is like spiritually damaging. So I, I did the you know the burning method. I think we discussed that before, but uh, yeah, I just trimmed it a few days ago. Uh, tell me, the, refresh me. What, what do you mean? It's like a powder that you put on that uh, burns away the beard. No, I actually just use like a, a lighter or a match and, uh, you know, like I'll dampen my beard a tiny bit so I, I don't uh, burn myself. But uh, you kind of just go around the beard with a with a, a match and it burns right off. It smell it has a certain smell like the carotene smell and the hair and the hair has a very distinct smell. But uh, um, it's semi-common among Hasidim. Uh, you know, like Rebbe Nachman, you're like, I'm, I'm kind of scared, even though, uh, you know, like, I, 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 I mean, I even admit, like, you know, God forbid, I'll sometimes, you know, like, use electricity on Travis or, or various things, but, like, I'm scared to trim my beard. So whatever reason, like, I'm scared to trim my beard or, uh, you know, so I, I'm still burning it. And why did you burn your beard? I mean, why did you feel the desire to trim it? to remove, remove most of it. I, I probably spent eight years of my life where I didn't shave once. You know, like I'd hardly shaved just a handful of times. I, I was very late and had small hair growth even till about 20 years old. Um, so I'd never even really uh, shaved much. And, uh, you know, I was a Hasidic Jew. And the first time I decided to do it, like I... I you know, I was superstitious. I was scared to cut my beard because I was like, you know, into the casitas and the Kabbalistic warnings. So, so I burnt my beard, uh, you know, because I still wanted to be a Hasidic Jew, but it was getting, kind, you know, kind of longer than I wanted. Even my late 20s, I got a handful of uh, white beard, white hairs. Now, God forbid, I have a bunch of them. But uh, um, so, you know, for probably like five years, I started burning my beard while I was a Hasidic Jew, because it was like the exception, because like, you know, like you're definitely not allowed to cut your beard, especially in like the very Hasidic circles I was in, in Brooklyn. So I burnt my beard. And, uh, and, and so I just, I've just been using that method uh, since, even though, um, yeah, I, I think I'm still superstitious for whatever reason that I just, you know, like we were talking the hero system. Um, I'm a rationalist, but, I, but I'm superstitious about some things and, and I've read the Kabbalistic uh, material about uh, the negative spiritual impact of uh, cutting your beard and the, you know, the one exception of burning it, even though that's, uh, you know, even just a, a weak exception. Okay. 
back to the Sam Bankman Freed FTX meltdown. Are there any perspectives, any articles you've read, any podcasts you've heard, any ideas that have been shared that have most captured your attention in this story? Yeah, I've checked news sources of all kind. And you know, so there's a few like, I think Coinbase or crypto pages. And I spoke to you know, this guy, Forex Shark, who um, I became friendly with. He saw me on JF Public Space debating years ago. And he's you know a trader and we've been talking for years. Um, so there's actually trading periodicals and then there's the liberal media. So I've noticed the New York Times, um, you know, I've, I've been reading the New York Times for a few years now. Like my mother's got the New York Times for her whole life. Oh, they they don't uh, do a hard copy anymore. So just online, she gave me a password. Uh, but yeah, I noticed the New York Times has been very sympathetic towards him. Uh, the New York Times was propping him up, uh, you know, even kind of putting him as this uh, hero and uh, the future of trading. Uh, a lot of uh, the mainstream liberal media, I read the Vox article, Vox admitted that uh, they were funded by him and they had the Twitter leaks. Um, but, you know, I'll just search it and read all types of information. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if you're, you're familiar, kind of, you know, kind of like the, the alt-right or any subfield there's a lot of people into crypto and so there's a lot of crypto web pages and news servers that have uh, regular stories i've checked youtube also so a lot of names i never even heard of i think there's a guy peter boyle um that does financial stuff uh you know i saw sam harris who had interviewed him and uh, his retake uh, but just searching youtube for videos on it um you know, so there's the conspiracy, the hardcore conspiracies, there's the mild conspiracies, and and then there's like the evidentiary conspiracies that are kind of digging through what we know. And uh, you're not trying to label a conspiracy, but just saying something's up here. What can we gather from the information? You're know, saying like, is like Bankman-Fried's father? How much is he involved? Did he know about it? We know that uh, Bankman got a lot of his connections from his father. Uh, you know, like like how we got into the hero system thing in general. Was it were they just suckers falling for their uh, desire for for there to be this hero that was going to make all this money and then uh, you know be just with it and give it to the right causes, or was there some sort of active conspiracy? There's a lot of you know, random YouTube videos making connections to Ukraine. Uh, there's some evidence, like, uh, you know, certainly he raised money for the Ukraine, at least $70 million. Uh, if he got cuts on it, you know, the New York Times, he was going to be speaking there with uh, Zelensky. Um, and then there's also the internal crypto, like, Binance. I'm not sure if you know the CZ, the, the uh, Canadian-Chinese competitor of Binance who took him down. So I watched his interviews, and I've read uh, you know the articles about him. If you know to say was it some sort of uh, CIA, U.S. government, uh, you know who knows, uh, would be involved in the conspiracy to try to uh, take down Bitcoin, and uh, and there's all sorts of like uh, you know Bitcoin um, 
is being used to skirt sanctions, possibly by North Korea, Iran, Russia, uh, Binance has refused to uh, conduct sanctions against Iran and Russia. And, uh, you know, so there's credible motive that, you know, Bankman could just be the fall guy for U.S. government activity trying to uh, steer people away from Bitcoin or uh, FTX's main competitor, uh, Binance. I'm not sure how, how much you've read into the story or know, know the players, if you're familiar with Binance and CZ or uh, what he was doing for raising money for Ukraine or, or the, you know, the general fear of Bitcoin and uh, use, being used to skirt sanctions in like Iran and Russia. Well, I turned pretty hard against uh, Bitcoin about a year or two years ago. And so I haven't read much about cyber currencies uh, since then. So in, yeah, May of 2021, that's when I just thought that, uh, that uh, these, these cyber currencies were, were useless. And, and so I haven't, haven't kept up with them. Useless to you, maybe. No, I also... useless in general. I, I think that I think that in May of 2021, I just don't see any benefit from using cyber currencies unless you're a criminal. Yeah, that's kind of how I looked at it also, because like I heard of Bitcoin even from the very beginning, and uh, it didn't seem to have any use besides for as one of the most dangerous possibly, things. You know, some way to make a bunch of money, and I don't know what what I would want to buy with it. Um, and, you know, like I don't have enough money that I would uh, consider, you know, diversifying and investing in uh, Bitcoin. But, uh, yeah, I think for the criminal activity, certainly on the alt-right, uh, did you ever make a Bitcoin for yourself to collect donations? Uh, no, I did. I did. Uh, I did buy $500 worth of Bitcoin at one point and, and made, made some money with it. But uh, but you never set up like a. no. That Bitcoin uh, uh, yeah, so I mean, certainly on the alt right, uh, stayed alive. You know, like Nicholas Fuentes had that uh, large donation. John Francis Garepi, uh, even uh, you, know, from what I understand, that's how uh, um, the Daily Show, uh, like uh, like uh, Mike Enoch and Eric Stryker, made a whole bunch of money and were able to stay afloat on Bitcoin, um, but also. Uh, you know, like God forbid the the JCC the Israeli JCC bomb hoaxer used Bitcoin, um, and that's why he was so hard to detect for a period of time. And uh, you know the likelihood that uh, North Korea and uh, so I was always skeptical, and I always figured that it's probably you know some it's probably the major players are like North Korea and Iran, and in uh, the, the news stories like Russia. Um, but it's an important story. And so if you're the CIA or the U.S. government and you're worried about sanctions on these countries or you know, global geopolitics uh, war, that uh, your Bitcoin's probably what they're using. And uh, you know that's theoretically why the powers that be in the U.S. were likely propping up Bankman Freed and and then he was just stealing the money or gambling away with it, that, that it was borderline ridiculous. And I've mentioned that, um, you know, science and engineering in general, that most people in politics 
know extremely little about science and engineering. Uh, like I think we talked about uh, the you know, a few times over the years of the the congressional hearings on social media, and they might talk about censorship, but when they talk about how the technology actually works, uh, you know, God forbid that you know the boomers, even my parents are are really far behind, and I could see like that it's possible. I mean, how how do you how do you see it that that uh, uh, how did you know I I could see millions of people getting fooled if they're just young people thinking it's going to be easy time to invest or, or cheat on taxes or to not have a, a digital fit, footprint, um, but you know, also majority criminal activity, and uh, and then you know just people saying well at the same time there's a lot of people making a lot of money off of it and I want to get in on it. And uh, you're just so, so, you know, the major driving mark of the market is fear and greed. And so it was probably just greed where people like you, um, you know, were like, okay, who cares? You know, I didn't care. But at the same time, if you're investing and you see other people making money, the, just the, the greed factor gets in and it's like, oh, there's easy money. Everyone else is making easy money. Um, and, and so at some point you uh, try to get in on it. And then, God forbid, uh, you know, someone like Bankman Fried stole all your money and it's all gone. Right. So when I finally did some research on cyber currencies in May of 2021, I just thought these are not good, good investments. And most importantly, they're, they're terrible forms of currency. So there, there are five features that a currency should have. This was a blog of Kevin Drum. It should be hard to counterfeit. It should be stable in value. It should be easy to carry. It should be widely accepted. It should be 100% liquid. Uh, Bitcoin fails three of these tests. It's not stable in value. It's not widely accepted. It's not 100% liquid. Uh, it's it's just, uh, I just didn't see the benefit for, for, for Bitcoin unless you're operating in the the, the black market. And so... You didn't have that drive for easy money, even though you didn't see the benefit in just saying like, oh my God, all these people are making so much easy yeah, money. Yeah, I did. I dropped, I dropped $500 when I earned 15% on that $500 I just got out. You yeah. said 1,500%? No, no, no. I invested $500. I earned 15%. I made like $75 and then I just got out. Yeah. I mean, that's people, you like want to make 1,500%. And uh, you know, double their money, so returns that aren't possible in normal markets. And yeah, I thought that was pretty shaky, pretty shady, and likely that uh, people would lose their money. Although I don't think they're going away, uh, you know, due to global shadiness. And you see people like Elon Musk or uh, um, Jack Dorsey. A lot of billionaires are pro crypto, and I could see that also. That if you had extremely large amounts of money that uh, you might want to diversify and you might want uh, some of that in crypto. And and it's probably shady in general if it's a distrust in the dollar or the U.S. government. So if it's like me and you, we just be like, okay, God forbid if the, the U.S. collapses, um, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not preparing for that scenario with uh, with like Bitcoin. But if you are extremely wealthy and you were worried about like post-apocalypse or, or you know, like who knows, like you know, the country turning on you. Um, that uh, Bitcoin also serves that purpose. 
but you would have to be able to use it somewhere and that would you'll probably mean like you know like you're gonna i mean you can't even use it in china you know saying that you're gonna travel someplace else in the world and try to make a new start with the you know like so i don't have that kind of doomsday planning i don't you know i doubt you're that type personality where it's like you you think like oh my god looks what's happening here in the united states and uh you know so i'm looking into uh like moving to South America and making a new start or something like that, where uh, you, you would uh, you'll think about Bitcoin like that, but you know that's all, like also that's also pretty shady. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to uh, move on. Any any final words for today? Yeah, nice to see. You. I, I've ch- I've watched a few of your videos, and uh, yeah, I'm not sure your time frame or your streaming, um, but uh, you're good to hear from you and. Uh, and you know, see uh, see what happens. You you definitely coming back in January or yes, you're okay. Yeah, so uh, God bless. Enjoy and any uh, update and possibly my suggestion on uh, using your time to work on a book. I haven't made any progress in that that direction. It's tough to do. I've been trying to work on my writing, but you know, like if you found some sort of uh, narrative arc or idea that you would you, you probably could uh write an interesting book and i don't know how financially successful it'd be even you know judaism streaming alt-right um you know any of these things if you uh you know especially because you have uh, so many blog articles that you could probably piece together to be the precursor outline of a book but uh you know i got your book so if you did that it'd be an, it, interesting but uh i can't afford to uh you know like uh drop you uh you know, someone would probably have to drop you a few thousand dollars to uh, make it worth your while to really work on it. But uh, if you did do that, I thought that'd be kind of cool. Okay, David, good to talk to you. Take care. Okay, thanks, David. Let's. Uh, this is me talking about Bitcoin and cyber currencies in May. I've uh, been aware of Bitcoin for approximately a decade, but I only got stuck into it this week, did some reading on it, and I emerge unimpressed by Bitcoin. So perhaps the easiest summary that uh, makes common sense to me is by a liberal blogger named Kevin Drum, how baseball cards explain what a Bitcoin really is. So what is money it tends to have these attributes. It's hard to counterfeit. So Bitcoin meets that need. It is stable in value. That's not Bitcoin. Bitcoin is rocketing up and down in value. It is light and easy to carry. Bitcoin meets that. It is widely accepted. Bitcoin does not meet that, and it is 100% liquid. So Bitcoin currently gets uh, close to that. So is Bitcoin money? No. Not really. But it is hard to counterfeit, and it is easy to carry around so what else shares these attributes of being hard to counterfeit and easy to carry around so rare stamps and coins and uh, tulips baseball cards so bitcoin really has few of the attributes of money but all of the attributes of a collectible so think of it as like a 1952 mickey mantle card that's worth more than a 1951 willie mays both Cards are more valuable than, say, a Tom Egan rookie card, which is sort of the Dogecoins of baseball cards. So Bitcoin fans like to insist that it's money, but that's a serious category mistake. It's a genre error. So to criticize 
Ben Shapiro for being a shallow thinker, you're making a genre error because he's just a talk show host who just pumps out the most conservative opinions possible, even if he knows absolutely nothing about what he's talking about. But that's the genre that he works in, talk show host. He doesn't write thoughtful books. He just just knocks off shallow books. So Bitcoin's supposedly strongest selling point, absolute privacy, is mostly a lie because almost all Bitcoin is traded through central exchanges that are regulated by national governments. You don't have to use a central exchange if you have the technical chops to trade it yourself, but that's a pain and it makes Bitcoin even less money-like than it already was. So don't think of Bitcoin as money. Think of it as like Beanie Babies or Pez dispensers or other collectibles. And after you make this mental adjustment, you're no longer confused about Bitcoin. It's a collectible. It's not a currency. It's a collectible that's got a lot of hype. Maybe it will stay valuable the way that rare stamps and coins have stayed valuable. Or maybe like Beanie Babies, it won't. But whatever turns out to be the case, it means nothing profound about the future of money. Bitcoin is just another collectible that will go up and down at the whims of its fans. I thought that was an excellent little summary there on Bitcoin. Here is a debate between Anthony Popliano and Mike Green. On Both Bitcoin. for coming and having this conversation on Real Vision Crypto. Anthony, of course, you've been on Real Vision uh, multiple times and you've hosted Rao on your Pump podcast. Mike, you host Mike Green in conversation series right here on Real Vision. This debate started on Twitter. We all love Twitter. It's a great place to blast out little squibs, but not always the best place to have a long form conversation. You know, when I think about this, uh, this is more than a debate between two individuals. This is two worldviews colliding. And that broader collision is just beginning to be felt around the world. I couldn't think of two better people to represent those worldviews here than you, Pump. You're at the very vanguard of the digital assets investment movement at Morgan Creek Digital. Mike, what you do over at Logica Capital is some of the most sophisticated analysis of traditional capital markets anywhere. And we're very glad to have both of you here on Real Vision for this conversation today. Mike, since you started to make the case that kicked off this debate, why don't you go first and explain the basic framework? What is your view of Bitcoin and why? Well, just first is background, right? The reason that I became more actively involved in the Bitcoin uh, debate was kicked off by actually a Real Vision event, a blacklist event in Dallas, Texas in October of 2020. Uh, I was fortunate to be there uh, and have the opportunity to engage with a number of family offices that were almost uniformly making the observation that they were in the process of replacing gold in their portfolios or reallocating away from gold into Bitcoin. And interestingly, they all used the same terminology, that it was the superior asset. As I began to evaluate that condition and to think about that dynamic, uh, it was important for me to really dig in in a professional sense. And as I've indicated elsewhere, I've participated in Bitcoin. I've had involvement with Bitcoin on a personal basis historically. I ultimately have chosen not to do that anymore. Um, And that was a personal choice. As I dug into it on a professional basis, it required a much deeper dive. Once I began to dig into it and to evaluate this claim that Bitcoin was a superior asset, it became very clear to me that that was really totally untrue, that it was an inferior asset relative to gold. So I played around with Bitcoin. I Number one, I wanted to make it easier if people wanted to give me money in, in the form of Bitcoin. I wanted to learn a little bit about it. And uh, I bought some Bitcoin. I held on to it till I made about a 15% profit. Then I sold all out of Bitcoin about uh, two months ago. Certainly in terms of the dynamics of why a central bank would choose to hold it. And secondly, it, became an, it was recognizable as an inferior asset once you actually began to evaluate the claims that are made within the community. I think one of the things that sets my work apart in traditional asset markets is the recognition that a rising price does not tell you something is working, that something is going to be successful, right? You and I have been recorded where I've used the terminology driving uphill with no brakes. I would suggest the same thing applies to Bitcoin, where the price has clearly risen, and that gives people comfort in the story. But the reality is that Bitcoin is a superior asset for one reason and one reason only. It facilitates those who want to work against the existing system, either to generate dollars in the case of China, Russia, Iran, or other bad actors on the global stage that are trying to avoid sanctions, or for criminal purposes. 
And as I dug further into the data that is presented within the industry, it became very clear that the data that is being presented is disingenuous. So for example, the industry will simultaneously say 95% of the data is fake, 95% of the transactions are fake, and then use those same 95% of the transactions in disputing the claim that crypto is primarily used for crime. If you look at reports like a report from Elliptical that came out in 2020, in 2020 regarding the utilization of crypto for crime purposes, they suggest that it's around 2%. And the disingenuous claim is made over and over again that the US dollar is more widely used for crime or the euro is more widely used for crime. Of course, that's true given the relative acceptance of them. There's a proportion of transactions within Bitcoin. We either have to decide that the 95% of the transactions that are referred to as being fake and therefore shouldn't be considered should be ignored when we're thinking about the dynamics of the utilization for crime purposes. And if we adjust for that, what we discover is nearly 40% of crypto transactions are actually used for crime. So to just get uh, one one dramatic perspective on cyber currencies, there's a terrific series on Netflix called Startup. It runs three seasons. It was originally on Crackle, but it's all about the world of cyber currencies, about people starting up a cyber currency business and then starting up uh, their own dark web. And uh, set in Miami, it's uh, great fun. And it's a dramatic way of getting a feel for the cyber currency world. The vast majority of the mining activity is occurring in regions like China, Russia, and Iran. And if we incorporate the participation of mining pools, they control in excess of 90% of the hash rate. This is not a decentralized system. It has become an increasingly centralized system focused on one thing and one thing only, attracting U.S. dollars and providing that to those who are utilizing resources in regions like China, Russia, and Iran to capture dollars. Pop, I imagine you have a different view. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I, uh, we can get into all the specifics of kind of my... Okay, and so also in May of 2021... Well, he was around a lot of Muslims in the Middle East, and uh, as I've said to you before, authoritarians love authoritarianism. Shapiro, will you bake Ruben a wedding cake? The answer is no. The very implication that we all exist right, welcome to back, do things for the greater good is totally antithetical to the purpose of being human. Bolsar, uh, Bolsar no movement goes on forever, right? Eventually it either spins out of control in a horrific way or it, it perhaps winds down or something in the middle. If we were having an anniversary party, would you come? You know, honestly, I'd have to think about it in the same See, way. So that's interesting to me. Yeah, I, that's, that's a different thing. I want you to continue to say you're, you're a liberal. <laughs> you're a great use. Don't worry, I'm not doing it for your use oh, of me. I'm doing, I'm doing it for myself. Competition would start kicking in. All I ever wanted was exact equality under the law. Now we're equal. You yeah. could call me well, that's what it right feels now. Like it wouldn't me. mean anything to me. Between UPS and FedEx and Amazon and drones and blah, 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 and DHL. Your brain's got a lot of stuff in there. 30 years from now, I may have moved you on coming to an anniversary party. It would be unlikely that you'd move me, but I, I can never rule out the possibility of being moved on anything. <laughs> I believe that probably at 80-something years old, Ben will go, you know, I think maybe I was wrong on that. So you have to confront them with these ethical dilemmas, and usually you'll watch their heads explode. Uh, uh, Why is it that we're able to do this, and most people can't do this? That's what I'm curious about. All right, that's it. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) That'd be a coward. Hey, hello. All right, welcome back, fam. How are your diamond hands going? Let's keep it strong, everybody. We just got to hold on a little bit stronger, and then we're going to the moon. I promise you guys, we're going to go to a million dollars. And for your other friends and family, make sure to get them in on this right now. Also, borrow their money, take out a loan, take a loan on your car, mortgage your house, take out a loan on your bank. You can take out loans on your credit cards as well. Max out those credit lines. Ask your friends, your family, your parents to put everything into bitcoins because this is your last chance. If they don't, they're going to have fun staying poor. Now, in this video, we are going to be pumping our next altcoin, which is Cardano, and why I think Cardano will 10x. 
So let's get those diamond gloves, put them on and put it into Cardano, which is going to be the future of DeFi and overtake Ethereum as the number one DeFi coin out there. Now, let's clarify something. I know that I'm the biggest crypto bear out there, but if you were to ask me which one coin I may invest in and which coin I think is going to 10x from here on out, then that may just hey, well be welcome crap. Cardano. And I wanted to outline for you the bull case for why. I think Cardano has a few legs to run on here. So if we take a look here, actually, at the top eight coins, let's say, well, we've got Bitcoin number one. Okay, this is some of my Bitcoin cynical production from May of uh, 2021. Right, biggest story, who is Sam Bankman freed Burris Paris? Uh, but I think there's there's more, we can do more with, with her. Let's, let's just, just focus on her because she's the, the paradigmatic. Okay. She's like the, the paradigmatic both instigator and crusher of of your dream. Right. Is, is that fair? Sam Bankman freed Yeah, yeah I, you know, okay, yeah, but, but I... I Right. I do describe uh, things Talking in that her. manner, but I also highlight the other story that I can, I can understand. Like she, from from her perspective, as the person who sort of went on a, out on a limb to you know give me this fellowship and has certain professional aspir aspirations, you know, my my conduct uh, was highly delinquent. So yeah, so you know, I, I, I try to keep that tension in uh, in, in view. Um, you know, as you can tell from the, from the book, you know, there wasn't really beyond a certain point. It wasn't really uh, that much personal interaction other than through through email. So, you know. But she got you a fellowship. I would assume that's ben, not a ben trivial gift. She mother, seemed to have Barbara substantial Freed. hopes and dreams for your career. That's and, right. And I document that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, she and did. So and, I, was, and I frustrated those. Yeah. You, I agree. You, yeah. You, you frustrated those. And so I would imagine that she experienced. So he refused to abide by the customs, the norms, the ways of speaking that were expected of someone who wants to succeed in the legal profession, right? There's a special vocabulary for people in the ruling class, right? There are ways of speaking, there are ways of thinking, there are ways of discussing moral, political, cultural issues. And Ronnie Goldman refused to abide and he did not get to succeed. He did not get to elevate his career as his mentors, Barbara Fried and, and Joe Bankman at Stanford Law School expected of him. He refused to embody the elite discourse. He refused to embody the approach of the you know, tenured faculty professor. He refused to play by the rules of the game. As a result, like his career in the legal profession as a professor was absolutely crushed. You as as betraying her faith in yeah. you. Yes, I believe that. And I, and I think I, and I use and I use those uh, very words. And, you know, is that true or is that not true? Well, no, that's where it's, it's, it's subjective. You know, of course, from, from her perspective, I could understand why she would experience yeah. it as betrayal. Yeah. But Okay, thank you, Glenn Medley. This is Ronnie Goldman. He got a fellowship at Stanford Law School on the instigation of Barbara Freed, who is Sam Bankman Freed's mother. Sam Bankman Freed ran FDX into its meltdown. Billions of dollars are being lost. So Sam Bankman-Fried's parents are professors at Stanford Law School. They are also the antagonists in this Ronnie Goodman memoir on his two years at Stanford Law School. The memoir is called The Star Chamber of Stanford on the Secret Trial of a Stanford Law Fellow. And Ronnie Goodman was initially the golden boy for Barbara Freed and her husband, Joe Bankman. Who they are also the parents of Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX. And this is his story, his run-in his refusal to abide by the, the norms expected of someone who's going to join the elite class. Or betrayal is a subjective feeling that other people aren't doing as you expected. Yeah.
it's just a hyperbolic yeah. expression. Do you think she learned anything? Like, do you think she has she changed as, as a result of the great disappointment with Ronnie Goldman? You know, I I, I really hesitate to speculate about something where you know I don't even have a, a modicum of circumstantial evidence. But with with that caveat, you, you know, again, I felt that there was uh, a strong connection. At certainly, you know, at, at at the beginning, it wasn't, and it wasn't just that, you know, she thought well of me, but I felt that, you know, she also had a sense of the potential for uh, my, my 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 project. That maybe she understood certain of its layers or felt certain of its layers even better than I I had. So certainly, given that, and what was his project? His project was a deconstruction is deconstruction of liberalism. And what he developed from that deconstruction is this epic work that I keep quoting from. It's Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression on the Nature and Origins of Conservophobia by Ronnie Goodman. That's Ronnie Goodman in the interview that I did with him in July of 2022. So this initially began as an essay he produced at Stanford Law School now it's been turned into a 700-page magnum opus, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression on the Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. And this is a man largely of the left who is deconstructing leftism, and he gets down to the brass tacks. The main difference between the left-wing and right-wing approach to life is a different understanding of human nature. So the left-wing perspective is that we are buffered, so that what you do, what goes on outside of me doesn't necessarily have to affect me that uh, also other key parts of the left-wing view on the nature of the self is that we're basically good, that we have the capability of rationality and being strategic and autonomous. The right-wing understanding of the self is that we're not basically good, that we are porous, so that what you do, what goes on in the house next door is going to affect me. We're vulnerable, we're porous, right? And so because we're vulnerable and we're porous from a traditional perspective, the greatest danger is contagion and disorder, right? So people on the right tend to be alert for sources of contagion, moral, spiritual, biological contagion, as well as disorder. People on the left, they believe human nature is basically good. Therefore, the greatest dangers are ignorance and bigotry. So that's the the foundation between these two different worldviews. And... Ronnie Goldman does an excellent job of explicating this in his book, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression on the Nature and Origins of Conservophobia. This is Sam Bankman-Fried's father, Joe Bankman, appearing on the FDX podcast. Just Kids in general have like some aversion to doing things with their parents. I don't think this is always the case, but there's definitely some little natural resistance there. Um, Did... When you started helping FTX, like, did Sam ask you to come on or did you realize, okay, like Sam needs a hand. I'm going to come on and help him. How, how did that initial interaction go? Well, uh, I don't know. I think we've always enjoyed working together and thinking together. At least I like to think so. So when I really came on was after Sam asking me for a number of years, if I'd be interested in doing it, which was really gratifying. I think any parent would love to hear that. Uh, I wanted to make sure that uh, I could do it and be useful. 
But I think from the start, whenever I was useful, I lend a hand. And it was clear at the start that on things like law, I mean, the company didn't have any lawyers. So I think my utility there was pretty obvious. Yeah, totally, 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 totally. And what are some of the things, because now you've been, you know, much more active member of FTX in the last maybe year, year and a half or something. Um, What have you been up to? Like, what have your interests been? Well, I spend about half my time working on uh, charity projects. Mm -hmm. Uh, One that I'm working on, we call Bank the Unbanked. And as you probably know, Tristan, there are about, depending on how you look at it, Okay, so this is Sam Bankman-Fried's father, Joe Bankman, a professor at Stanford Law School. And this is an interview that was posted three months ago. 30 to 50 million Americans or more that don't have bank accounts or are underbanked. They have them, but they don't use them. And if you're not part of the financial system, everything is harder. It's expensive to cash checks. It's expensive to move money around. So that's kind of a national disgrace. Having a bank account is a little bit like having utilities. Everybody should have one. So what we're trying to do at FTX is figure out how to give populations that don't have bank accounts, bank accounts and crypto wallets. And so we had a pilot program in South Florida, and we have a big program coming up in Chicago. And the goal is to organize a template so that uh, tens of millions of Americans can uh, get a bank account that they can live with. And it's tougher if you're poor because you're living hand to mouth. So you're apt to overdraft your account and then you face a big penalty. One of the advantages, by the way, of crypto is that the payment system is a lot faster. So moving from the bank settlement system to the blockchain could be one way we could limit that. Anyway, that's one of the things I spent a lot of time on. But actually, in my part of FTX charity, which is actually, I'd say, only about a fifth of it, we have something like 240 activities going on right now or in the last year. So there's all sorts of programs. That's about half of what I do. And the other half of what I do is regulation, mm-hmm. uh, broadly speaking. So it's the bills moving for, through Congress. It's whether we'll get approval from a regulatory agency, things mm-hmm. like that. Do, do you work with, with um, Gabe Sam's brother as well with pandemic preparedness stuff or is or not that much? Uh, <clears throat> Uh, whenever I'm asked, I do. Okay. And uh, uh, Gabe uh, uh, Bankman-Fried, Sands Brothers, doing my son, is doing fantastic stuff on pandemic preparedness. And Sam and other principals at FTX, along with other people, are funding some of that. And as some of your uh, uh, viewers know or may know, uh, it's kind of shocking that even after COVID, the one thing Congress has trouble funding is pandemic preparedness. And here's a pandemic that's killed way more people than died in uh, 9-11 and cost trillions of dollars of damages. And yet it's easier to raise money to build a highway than it is to put money aside to uh, deal with the next pandemic. So I do help Gabe a little bit uh, with that. 
but mostly that's work that he and others are doing themselves. I just, I just cheer it along. Got it. And back to the bank then back. So essentially what they could end up with is something like an FTX app where they can receive their, their um, salary into if they're working a job or they can have the FTX card where they can spend their balances from their crypto wallet. Is that, is that sort of how it would work? Exactly right. What we're doing is like all FTX app users, uh, you get a, a bank account with your app if you want it. So in Chicago, for example, we're working with justice impacted families. A lot of poor families, especially their people of color, uh, have uh, had family members spend time in prison. That's mm-hmm. what we mean by justice impacted. And everything is harder once you get out. And almost none of these people have bank accounts. So what we're giving them is what we give all FTX US users, which is an app that is tied to a bank account and it's tied to a debit card, an FTX card, basically a Visa card. We're funding that in this program as we've always done with our pilot programs with some money. And then uh, individuals will have a bank account. They'll be able to deposit checks into that. And uh, if they want to send remittances, which is a big deal for actually for a lot of poor Americans because they have even poor family members abroad in the global South. They want to send money abroad. It's a great way to send money abroad using stable coins. So we'll take this population and we'll show them how to use the app and then we'll measure uh, whether it improves their life. Very cool. Yeah, I can totally relate. I mean, less of the primal use case a lot of people use it for, but I've definitely like been able to help some of my cousins with their businesses and stuff by just sending crypto down to Chile and you know get a 20% you know steal from Western Union or whatnot. Absolutely. And what we found in South Florida is that even in areas we think are very poor, there are a lot of budding entrepreneurs who are moving money around with businesses that have suppliers that are out of the country and crypto is a great way to do that. Yeah. No, I, 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 yeah, I love crypto as a settlement tool. I think it's like very powerful international settlement tool. Um, one last question for you, Joe, and this is more of a personal one, but what is, what is a life habit or a life lesson that you've really taken to heart that you feel has improved your life? Wow. It's, it's such a great question. Uh, well, I'll tell you something that I'll tell you a couple of things I tell uh, uh, my clients in therapy, which uh, works for me too. Uh, one is giving gratitude. If you can say thank you to someone or thank someone uh, or even think about someone who has done you a good turn, you'll be happier. It's kind of like a little bit of a magic bullet. You'll feel a lot of your hostility and anger and anxiety uh, fade away. And I really use that. Uh, Another thing uh, later in life is exercise. Mm -hmm. Same kind of thing. It's kind of a magic bullet. So uh, if you're not doing it and are willing to try it, uh, same effect on anger and anxiety and depression. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with both of those. 
try and keep the gratitude strong all the time. Makes for better. Yeah, guys, try to keep the, the gratitude strong all the time. Even if you've lost your life savings in FTX, that was Joe Bankman, the father of Sam Bankman-Fried. Joe Bankman is a professor at Stanford Law School, and this is a bloke oh, in Bondi. Yeah, absolute biological necessity. Uh, we all fear being insignificant, and so we're looking to attach ourselves to a cause, to you know, something that transcends us, something that's going to outlive us. We want to attach ourselves to something that goes back in time and will you know, outlive us. And by attaching ourselves to something like that, then we can overcome our own fear of insignificance. Oh, well said. I mean, very, very well said there, Forty. Okay, what else is going on? John Baptist of the villain of the 21st century. It's kind of disturbing in some sense. Well, do you think, I just don't see DeSantis. I just cannot see it. I mean, let's just be frank. I don't care if he's involved in the military. That doesn't actually make you a badass. The guy is short. He is fat. He is boring as hell. <laughs> he generates contempt. Because he's, he's a candidate of the past. Yeah, he's just he's some shadow. Right, and he, he benefited from Trump, but he also carries the baggage of Trump. I mean, I don't think the reaction against DeSantis will be as intense as the reaction is against Trump, granted. But it will be pretty intense, and it's going to be Martha's Vineyard and, like, you know, banning gays or whatever. It's going to be intense. They're not going to see him as, like, look at this pragmatic, down-to-earth leader who saved Florida. That is not going to be the narrative by the media, and that is not going to be the perception. And so it's, like, all of the Trump baggage, but none of the fun, so to speak. Like, he, I, I mean, I'm just telling you, like, among most people, you look at Ron DeSantis and you think, I'm better than you are. He's just lame. He is <laughs> soporific. He is short. He, his, he seems whiny. He's five foot eleven. He's not that short. Like whenever he's supposedly like beating people at arguments, he seems like a whiny bitch. Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree with that. All that. I think yeah. Ron DeSantis is like kind of role is kind of like a nail polish remover of Trumpism off the nail of the Republican Party. Mm. I think it's kind of like I think the whole purpose is to like, kind of kamikaze himself against you know Trump and his candidacy. So a new figure that's not painted by both opposition. Well, who would be that or... figure? Like if Trump came out of nowhere. No, he was. They were setting the groundwork. There was talk in um, twenty ten. There was talk in twenty twelve. I think in twenty twelve he went to CPAC. That was the year where he spoke. By the way, at Geo Proud, uh, that is the gay, gay conservative organization. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, there are all these weird twists and turns and all this. But um, he, you know, he did come out of nowhere. So who could come out of nowhere in a Trumpian way? Who would, who would come out of nowhere as a right-wing populist? I can't answer that question, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was some kind of a minority. And uh, Brandon says, now that I'm sober, I use food to get high. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you have an addictive personality, right, you're just going to start you know, transferring your addiction from one thing to another. So the most typical trajectory is you start getting recovery from, say, drug and or alcohol addiction. Once you get recovery there... You need to get recovery in your sex life. That that comes next. So you, you prioritize whichever addiction is most likely to kill you first. So you get recovery in drugs. You get recovery in alcohol. You get recovery in sex. You get recovery in love and relationships. Then you get recovery in money, finances, earning, spending, debting. That seems like the... The most familiar trajectory, which I see again and again. Oh, yeah. Some kind of like, you know, base X or whatever. You know, there's another yeah. base. They published some time ago. He said, you want me to. And yeah. I just said, you know, white's more prejudiced views. They polled them in 2016 and, and had Hillary Clinton and Ben Carson's favorability. And they found that prejudiced whites will always find like a base, like Ben Carson, more favorable than Hillary Clinton. Right. And, and likewise, it's true. And, and uh, there's been a lot of discussion in like kind of like a critical race theory about this kind of hypothesis. And ultimately, it's like this kind of like edginess where they're still kind of racist, but they're like thinking like, oh, I'm going to own the Libtards by supporting like, I'm supporting black, and now they think they can't yeah. be another racist. But, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree with that premise. Um, but who? I mean, I, I'm not Kanye West. Yeah, you're right. You're, you you nailed it. Who said that? Me. Yeah, I mean that that would be so nuts. Also, I someone sent this on DMs, but uh, I think Nick Fuentes, who we mentioned a few minutes ago, had the same opinion of the speech that I did, and he said something to the effect like, "I know if this is what it's about." You know, he wanted the red meat, this raw <laughs> Trump steaks thrown out into the audience. Um, but you know, if Kanye Kanye tried it in 2020, but that was a hastily assembled write-in candidacy, I believe. I know, was he on the ballot at all? But he now has time to do that. He has his own personal wealth. He would activate 
Okay, this is from Richard Spencer's Twitter space, November 16 of 2022. I haven't caught any Tucker Carlson live in a long time. Maybe you haven't either. Maybe maybe it's time to check out Tucker Carlson. It is noon in Australia. We are going out live over Rumble, over Twitter, over Odyssey, over YouTube, over my Facebook page and my Facebook profile. So we are going out to the entire world right now. They can't shut us down. They can't censor us. We are speaking and sharing and, and forming a bond, creating a shared reality, doing amazing things together. Here we go. Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. On Saturday night, as you may now have read, a 22-year-old man called Anderson Lee Aldrich walked into a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs and opened fire. By the time he was subdued by patrons, he had murdered five people and injured another 25. You've seen this story before, but no matter how many times you've seen it, it never stops being horrifying. And it shouldn't stop. Violence and cruelty should always horrify us every single time. When we start to become cynical about the deaths of other human beings, we have lost something essential to our humanity. Unfortunately, you're seeing that. So the most obvious question is, why did Anderson Lee Aldrich shoot 30 people? And the truth is, we don't know. We do know he was clearly a troubled person. Last summer, he threatened to blow up his mother's house with a bomb. Authorities had to evacuate the neighborhood during the four-hour standoff that ensued. Eventually, he surrendered. You're seeing this video first on CNN. That shows the alleged gunman, 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich, surrendering to law enforcement. This is just a year ago, in June of 2021, after allegedly making a bomb threat on his own mother. So after that happened, he, of course, was arrested and charged with first-degree kidnapping and felony menacing. But then the local district attorney, a man called Michael J. Allen, did not pursue charges. Why? We reached out to Allen's office today to find out why, but he did not get back to us, so we can only guess. We do know what the effect was. Because Aldrich was never charged with a crime and his arrest record was sealed, his violent past did not show up in background checks. Threatening to murder his own mother did not prevent him from buying a firearm, even under Colorado's so-called red flag law, which was designed to prevent that very thing. So those are the facts. That's what we know so far. Once again, authorities failed to keep the public safe. They didn't do their job. You may recognize now a pattern because you have seen that before. As for Aldrich's motive in shooting strangers, we can only guess. And we're not going to guess both because guessing would be dishonest and irresponsible. You can't just make up a story because it suits your pre-existing beliefs. But more to the point, we're not going to guess because it would dishonor the memories of the five people who were just murdered in Colorado Springs. These were human beings. They were Americans. They were not props in a larger ideological war. And to reduce them to that is wrong. That's exactly what many politicians are doing right now. Within hours of the shootings, Joe Biden and his allies used this tragedy as a pretext for disarming the law-abiding population of the country. We need more gun control, Joe Biden said predictably, notwithstanding the fact that Colorado's existing gun control laws, which are extensive, did not prevent this attack. So it was a contemptible and heartless and deeply cynical display of political opportunism. 
But it didn't stop with gun control, because in fact, the Second Amendment is not the freedom that threatens the people in charge the most. No, that would be the First Amendment, which is your right to say what you sincerely believe. That is the right, the first in our Bill of Rights, that terrifies them the most. Your words are a greater threat than any firearm. They must censor you or else they lose power. It is that simple. So these horrifying murders in Colorado over the weekend quickly became a pretext for yet more censorship of your speech. You are responsible for this, they told you, because you said the wrong things. You are guilty of stochastic terrorism, inspiring violence by your beliefs. Anderson Lee Aldrich committed mass murder because you complained about the sexualizing of children. Every time you object to drag time story hour for fifth graders or point out that genital mutilation is being committed on minors, which it is, every time you say that, you are putting people's lives at risk. Now, that seems implausible, and yet many are making this claim. Many have made it over the past 24 hours. Watch, for example, Brandy Zedrozny of NBC. Online, including this Libs of TikTok account, which feeds um, larger media like Fox News stories, what has happened is a demonization of LGBTQ people, um, calling them groomers and pedophiles. This type of thing, whether we can say it's motive or not, what we know is that it's just another reason why LGBTQ people are scared. So there it is right there. When you point out the truth indisputably, and the truth is that some adults in this country, apparently a growing number, have a deeply unhealthy fixation on the sexuality of children. When you say that out loud, you get people killed. That is what Brandy Zedrozny is saying. And by saying that, Brandy Zedrozny and the many people like her are effectively defending that same <laughs> deeply unhealthy fixation on the sexuality of children. By the way, it's absolutely real. You're not imagining that. It's happening. The evidence is everywhere, and it comes to light on the Internet. And Brandy Zadrozny and people like her hate that you're seeing that. Notice that Zadrozny is not claiming that Libs of TikTok is making this up. She never even suggests that. She is threatening them, and what she's doing is threatening them, you should know. And she's doing that because they're pointing it out. Noticing it's happening is their crime. And once again, it is happening. Children's Hospital in Boston, one of the most famous hospitals in the world, has admitted performing double mastectomies on children for no medical reason at all. There is no scientific justification for sexually mutilating kids. They are not doing it for a scientifically defensible reason. They are doing it because they believe in a very specific religious ideology. That's true. Is pointing that out an attack on gay people? Of course, it is not an attack on gay people. It has nothing to do with gay people. It has to do with sexually mutilating children, which is wrong, period. It should be a crime, period. And yet suddenly, it's very common. As we've reported on this show, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco Hospital, one of the leading hospitals in the world, is doing this as well. And they've said so out loud. This is an actual quote from their website, quote, Genital surgery is being performed on a case-by-case -case basis more frequently in minors. In the absence of solid evidence, providers often must rely on the expert opinions of innovators and thought leaders in the field. So your child gets sexually mutilated genital surgery that is irreversible, not on the basis of science, but on the basis of innovators and thought leaders. 
It's hard to believe that's happening. That quote was scrubbed, by the way, after we reported on it, not because it wasn't a real quote, but because it was a real quote. It was too incriminating. Once again, this is everywhere. A parent in Pennsylvania called Megan Brock decided to do some actual reporting on it because actual reporters choose not to. They look away and attack anyone who wants to know what's actually happening. So she filed a records request. And- oh, man. Oh, man. My, my pirate stream of uh, Fox News has gone down. Here, let's listen to a little Richard Spencer and company from November 16th. He would be Trumpian in the sense that he, you know, the media would just have to cover him. They would just, I mean, they would cut away from a Trump speech and cover an empty podium of Kanye. No doubt. Secretary Rachel Levine, she wrote Kyrie Irving from Hebrews to from Hebrews to president or something like that. More than 10 patients who have had chest surgery under 18, as young as 15, and bottom surgery, 17. That's the sexual mutilation of children for no medical or scientific reason simply because right now it is fashionable and consistent with a cult that has taken over a lot of leadership of this country. But the fact remains, children are being destroyed by this. It should be a crime. The people who commit it should be in jail. But it's not just the sexual mutilation of children in hospitals. This is part of a larger trend. And the trend is this. Adults crossing the line, and it has always been a bright line, into deep involvement with the sexuality of children. That has always been and must in a civilized society always be the most forbidden thing. It's considered unacceptable even among prison inmates. But now it seems to be growing in its prevalence. Consider the latest ad for the clothing brand Balenciaga. This was just uploaded on Instagram. As you can see, the photo shoot they're using to sell their products features a young girl holding a teddy bear in a bondage outfit. Then, in case you missed the point, the photo shoot also contains this image. It shows several documents. Most of them aren't visible, but what you can see when you zoom in, and of course the point is that you see it, is a reference to a U.S. Supreme Court case called Ashcroft versus Free Speech Coalition. That case struck down a law against kiddie porn. What is this? Well, it is what it appears to be. It's an endorsement of kiddie porn, of child pornography. What else could it be? We wanted to know. So we reached out today to Balenciaga to get their explanation, and they didn't respond. So we're going to have to take that on face value and ask, where's the moral outrage? We have an entire industry in this country comprised of moral outrage merchants. If you've ever been on Twitter, you know what we mean. Truly, an entire sector of our economy is devoted to attacking people for falling short of the mark. And here is a high-end retailer promoting kitty porn in an ad on Instagram, and nobody notices. There's no boycott. There's no front-page New York Times editorial against it. And, of course, Instagram let the advertisement run, endorsing kitty porn. And, by the way, if you have an alternate explanation for what this was, let us know. A child with a teddy bear in a bondage outfit and a Supreme Court decision striking down a kitty porn law displayed on the table? What is that? Are we jumping to conclusions? Don't think so. It is what it appears to be. It's right in your face and no one's saying anything. Again, Instagram had no problem with this. Until Elon Musk took over Twitter, Twitter allowed hashtags that explicitly linked to child pornography. Nobody said anything because crimes against children are no big deal. It's thought crimes that are the real crimes. So if you said something about it, if you were libs of TikTok and said, wait a second, this seems to be abetting child molestation, which of course, that's what it's doing. You were instantly booted off Twitter. 
But the links to kitty porn, they're still there. Well, now they've been deleted. Thank God. That's one improvement. So all of this has been happening out in the open, but NBC News hasn't bothered to report on any of it. Where was their report tonight on Balenciaga pushing kitty porn in an Instagram ad? No. They're reserving all their energy to attack you for noticing. You're a stochastic terrorist if you point it out. And you need to be censored. Watch. Content moderation is a hard task. Um, what we know is that Twitter and, and where the bulk of this information is right now, because that's where the biggest accounts like Matt Walsh um, and Libs of TikTok, again, where they sort of post this stuff. Um, what's being done? Well, two days ago, we know that Elon Musk, who owns Twitter now, he just reversed the policy that Twitter did have against targeting and harassment of LGBTQ people, against misgendering transgender people. So here you have people mutilating the genitals of children, running ads on Instagram, promoting kitty porn. And there's Brandy Zadrozny on NBC News. She's not attacking them. She's attacking anyone who notices and accusing them of attacking gay people. Once again, this has nothing to do with gay people. This is an attack on the sexual fixation on and mutilation of the genitals of children pushing kitty porn. There's nothing to do with gay people. That's an offense against anyone's definition of decency, and she's effectively defending it, and they all are. You're not allowed to notice it, or else you're committing violence. You're complicit in mass murder. Well, the people who are doing these things are fine. No one attacks them. An ACLU spokesman launched this attack on Doug Lamborn, a congressman from Colorado. Watch this. He voted against the Respect for Marriage Act and is a co-sponsor of Marjorie Taylor Greene's nationwide ban on gender-affirming care for trans youth. Huh? That's the crime? Children having their genitals mutilated on the basis of no science, no actual real medical guidance, no longitudinal study. There's no evidence this is a good idea, but GLAD is for it, so doctors mindlessly do it, and you can't complain or else you're a murderer? Too crazy. These are our children. Can't put up with it. For her part, GLAD's president declared that because of Saturday's shooting, you need to shut up while activists mutil doctors mutilate children. In terms of trans kids and gender-affirming care, the American Medical Association, the Pediatric Association, has confirmed that these are safe procedures. This is finished business. It's politicians and junk science who's creating some kind of debate or argument about this. Really? Now, we realize she's paid to say that. Of course, all these activists are paid to say what they say very specifically paid, ACLU's paid to say what they say. They all are. ADL's paid to say what it says. GLAD is paid to say what it says. But the truth is, the no BS scientific truth is, there's no evidence it's safe. Where's the 10-year study on that? Do you have one? Oh, you don't have one. We have no idea what the long-term effects of puberty blockers are. We have no idea. We can't even guess as the long-term psychological effects of general mutilation on a 17-year-old or 15-year-old. What? You have no idea it's safe. You're lying. It's not a safe procedure. We've spoken to a lot of victims of this barbarism, and it is barbarism. We did a whole documentary on it. And by the end of the documentary, we were more shocked than when we started reporting it out. Even people who support these procedures can't actually defend them. And that's the whole point. They have to make you shut up because they don't have any facts on their side. If you're not okay with child abuse, you're a murderer. And it's worked on a lot of weak-minded journalists who only care about status and acceptance by the group. But there are a few on whom it has not worked. And at the top of that list is Chris Rufo. 
He joins us now. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Chris, thanks so much for coming. I don't understand how Balenciaga, whatever they sell, can put an ad on Instagram today promoting kitty porn and no one says anything. Well, we're going to find out exactly what's going to happen to them. Certainly people are contacting them. They're in a lot of hot water. But the broader trend here is that what we're seeing is the emergence of a decentralized censorship regime. A hundred years ago, governments in Europe and the United States would have to censor content from the top down, uh, but they could be easily identified as the ones doing the censoring. Today, we have this consortium of left-wing activist journalists, left-wing NGOs and nonprofits, and then friendly administration officials in the FBI and the DOJ that work together behind the scenes to enforce public debate, to deplatform journalists who are actually doing the reporting on the issues, uh, and then even calling for the uh, prosecution and imprisonment uh, of, of political opposition using the FBI. We've seen that on critical race theory. We've seen that on radical gender theory. And the brilliance of this system, if we're going to give them some credit, is that it's almost operating invisibly. So what we have to do is we have to bring it to the surface, just as you've done, make it visible, put a name on it, and stop it, because this is the greatest threat to the First Amendment uh, in the last 50 years. And I just find it remarkable, the passive aggression that is always at work with these people. You pointed out, and they're the victims. I'm sure Brandy Zadrozny will be on Twitter right now saying that you're threatening her life by sitting across from someone who mentioned her name. They are never held to account for what they are promoting, which is the sexualization of children. Like, let's stop lying about it. It's right in our faces. That's right. And in that specific example, Brandy Zadrowski works for one of the largest and most powerful media corporations in the world. She has an affiliation with elite universities. This is someone who is in a position of power, who has actually made her career uh, doxing and targeting uh, uh, random online uh, citizens, Trump supporters, etc. She wrote a very sympathetic profile of an actual pedophile, a sex offender a number of years ago. Uh, these are people that prefer- pretend to be the powerless holding the powerful accountable, when in fact they're actually the powerful bullying the powerless, bullying independent journalists and bullying people who stand in the way of the left-wing apparatus that wants to push this ideology uh, on, on all Americans. Oh, they'd hurt you if they could. Trust me. Chris Rufo. Thank you for joining us tonight. Appreciate it. So outside, say, the IRS and the FBI, the last organization you want to get a text from is probably the New York Times, because it's not going to be good news. They're out to hurt you. Let's stop lying. But unlike Dave Portnoy, you probably didn't save the text. Dave Portnoy saved the text that he got from the New York Times when they tried to hurt him. Oh, he caught them lying. He joins us in just a moment. Okay, so Ashcroft versus the Free Speech Coalition. I actually know something about this. I actually know something about the Free Speech Coalition. They are the porn industry's trade group. So one of the talking points that people in the porn industry use to make the argument that what they're doing is okay is that it is legal, and they say we don't traffic in kitty porn. Well, they did traffic in kitty porn for as long as they could get away with it. You used to be able to go into pawn shops prior to 1977 and buy kitty porn. So as long as they could get away with it, the pornography industry trafficked in kitty porn. Then in 1977, the U.S. Congress <clears throat> passed strict laws against child pornography, and that is when the industry stopped trafficking in kitty porn. So Ashcroft versus the Free Speech Coalition. This is a U.S. Supreme Court case which struck down two 
provisions of the Child Pornography Prevention Act of 1996 because they said these these provisions abridge the freedom to engage in a substantial amount of lawful speech, right? So simulated child pornography is protected free speech, right? The U.S. Supreme Court established that simulated child pornography is protected free speech, so they overrode what Congress passed, and they... They, they have this uh, court case, all right, that's brought against the government, against the Attorney General at the time, John Ashcroft, by Free Speech Coalition, the Porn Industry Trade Group, and Bold Type, a publisher of a book advocating the nudist lifestyle, uh, some dude who paints nudes, and Ron Raffaelli, photographer who specializes in erotic images. So the Supreme Court rejected an invitation to increase the amount of child porn speech that could be categorically outside the protection of the First Amendment. Hey, you're probably wondering what the hell's going on with Richard Spencer and company. The whole anti-Semitism stuff. Well, I know. Or being just a politician in general, to be honest. But you could kind of say that about 2016 Trump. True. I mean, I don't think we, you can't underestimate the degree to which Trump was just treated as just anathema by the party. You know, I mean, they hated him. He, he granted, he would say things like, you know, we love Israel, blah, blah, blah. But he was kind of, in the America First stuff, there were these echoes of the old America First movement. There's a kind of sense of, you know, a kind of vague anti-Semitism and isolationism. Uh, Pro-Russia as well, really went against the party. So, and now he flipped them. He, he totally converted. I mean, it coincided with the Trump era, but he converted them to be Russia fanatics. Mm. So, I mean, things can change. And, you know, I, I think the Kanye thing is like just wild enough to work. The other thing I've noticed about like predicting history is that... Oh, by the way, regarding the news, remember when major news story for, for weeks was, will NATO establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine, right? You had all these politicians agitating for this. You had all these media pundits agitating for this. Now it's completely dropped off the radar. Russian planes don't fly over Ukraine because Ukraine has such excellent technology for bringing down airplanes that Ukraine on its own solved this problem, right? Ukraine is not bothered by Russian aircraft because Ukrainians have the technology to shoot those aircraft down. So this major news story, will NATO, will the United States establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine it's just been obviated by facts on the ground. So much of what's in the news is not very important. It, it's just a, a distraction from, from reality. There's always a narrative that gets going, and then you just throw that out the window. Basically, something else is going to happen. You know, it's, like, it's kind of like, in the, you know, it's rare that like, the, in the NFL, like the team that everyone has favorited, like, oh, this is their year, they're going to do it. Is Kanye and Milo, is that true? Yes. <laughs> right. Milo always glomming on to the next big thing. I mean, Milo acted as an intern for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, Milo is now a trad Catholic. Uh, Milo's always, you know, finding some some new new you know, right wing populist cause to glom onto. It kind of never works out that way. There's just something I don't know. It's just like a law of the universe. And everyone, so everyone now, if you, if you ask them, if you poll them, it's oh, DeSantis, Trump's over, it's DeSantis, you know, and um, Biden is too old to run twice or something like that. None of that's going to be correct. It's going to be something that, that's unpredictable that actually happens and then seems inevitable in retrospect. You know, I mean, you even see that with people like, um, I, I mean, I, as you know, Alberto, you can vouch because I know you were at that when I talked about it. So like three months ago, I was basically saying, I think I want to buck the consensus and like make a call for a democratic victory. Hmm. And then I questioned my own instincts. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> yeah. that, that recording is up on the Substack. But I kind of questioned my own instincts. I was like, oh, God damn it. I'm looking at these polls. I just can't like go against math. Well, it's ultimately not math. Ultimately, yeah. people go out and vote. And so I kind of should have stuck with my instincts. But anyway, 
<laughs> what you see from pundits now is that they're like, well, no one really thought there was going to be a red wave. Like we were all, it's like, no, you were, you were all convinced of it. The New York Times was convinced of a red wave mm-hmm. uh, a week before the election. So uh, it's always something else. And so everyone's kind of. Okay, let's go back to Tucker Carlson. He's not especially political. He's not a right winger or anything, but he's an American. So he believes in free speech. And because he believes in free speech and exercises it, other media organizations have been trying to destroy him. So he got the dreaded text from the New York Times. Can we talk to you? The story that resulted was written by a reporter called Emily Steele. And in that piece, Emily Steele writes this, quote, The Times provided Mr. Portnoy with detailed questions about this article. Barstool executives did not respond to repeated messages. Mr. Portnoy did not provide answers. So you probably didn't think about that if you read it in the New York Times, but it turns out it's not true. They lied, and unlike most people who've been attacked by the New York Times, Dave Portnoy can prove it. He just posted this exchange he had by text with Emily Steele, quote, Hi, Emily. I know you're currently trying to dig up dirt on me as a bunch of women I barely know have sent me your interactions. I'm an open book. I'd love to sit down and have an on-the-record conversation with you just to clarify. I get to record it and use the footage as well. So here's how Emily Steele, the Times reporter, responded. Quote, we're happy to meet in New York or talk over the phone today or tomorrow. We can record audio, but not video. We do not accept those terms. If you would like to provide feedback in response to my email, I'm eager to hear it. So it turns out Dave Portnoy did respond and offered to talk to them. He just wanted to videotape it because what would be wrong with that? When you're hiding something, you don't want that. And they are hiding a lot of things. They lied about that exchange. And Portnoy, unlike most people, can prove it. He joins us tonight. Dave Portnoy, thanks for coming on. So you grew up in Boston. I think you probably grew up in a family that took the New York Times seriously. You've lived in New York. You may live there now. Were you surprised by this? No, at this point, I wasn't. But what you just said, I talked to my dad, who is somebody who, what I say, trust the New York Times. Yeah. Um, and that's the alar- and that's the alarming part, because, you know, in, in the way you just preface it, I reached out to her seven months ago. Tucker, they've been doing this for nearly a year. I knew about this investigation. When I heard about it, I said, let's sit down, open book. I will answer any question you have. And the thing about it, and I don't care what your politics are, how you sit, I am the witness of a story you are working on for basically a year. And I am saying, I will sit down with you. You can ask me anything. I'm not saying lawyers in the room, nobody, just me. I will answer every single question you have. She had no interest in that. She said, I'm eager to do it. Two weeks went by. I didn't hear. I reached out again. I said, hey, I'm still here. So she did this. She worked on it for nearly a year. And then she went ghost, crickets. I didn't hear anything for seven months. And I get the text, the list of questions that says, hey, we want all these answers to all these allegations in 48 hours. It would be the equivalent if this is a court case, because that's what the Times is doing. Try to create a case that I'm a scumbag and sway people that you give one lawyer basically a year to present the entire case why this guy stinks and oh you have 30 seconds now to defend yourself who would ever do that who would nobody in their right mind she never had interest in telling the truth all she wanted to do was build a case against me she never talked to any of my friends anybody who would advocate she never wanted to hear how we do responsible gaming training at our company it was all a hit piece and she had no interest in hearing my side of the story What's so funny is it's about your personal life and you've got a pretty effervescent personal life, but I've been in the media for 31 years. You hardly have the creepiest personal life of any in the media. I mean, it comes to the media. These are creepy people. 
why are they trying to attack you on this? Because you're disobedient, right? Yeah, I, you know, I think I've become politicized a little bit. But like what you said, listen, I don't care if people don't like me, Tucker. I really don't. Yeah. All I'm saying is give people the full picture. That's I. Yeah. Well, I'm not. I'm disillusioned. I know that's not what the Times does. But how can you say this woman has a Pulitzer? They should take that back, break it, and throw it in the river. Like all I'm saying is, let people decide. How can you do such a one-sided hit piece and then say you're the New York Times and you actually? Okay, let's uh, get back to this uh, Richard Spencer discussion. Kind of fixated on this, and it might be something else. It might be something really different. And I think the Kanye suggestion, it's just crazy enough. It's just crazy enough to actually work. He was in the Oval Office. Ah. So, experience. Yeah, yeah. Been there, done that. Yeah. And White Lives Matter, I mean, it's kind of like he's taking a meme from 20, the 2016 alt-right, which was a Trump-era, you know, artifact, and he's... He got more than 12 million Votes you know, he and the yes effect. side won. So immediately, as promised, Elon Musk reinstated Donald Trump's Twitter account. CBS News was highly upset. They're for democracy, but not if it means presidential candidates getting to talk in public. So they got off Twitter saying their security was in danger. <laughs> and then on Face the Nation, which apparently is still a show, they interviewed a completely discredited NYU professor who claimed, buckle your seatbelt now, that the Russians must have hacked the Twitter poll. So I think these polls are mostly a gimmick, and I would argue the people haven't spoken. The GRU has spoken. These Twitter Russian has become, intelligence, you mean? Hundred percent. Twitter has become a playground for bad actors and fake bots. This poll is meaningless. This decision is meaningless. What? A, how can that guy teach you to college? What a crackpot! Like the Russians aren't busy enough. They're in the middle of a war, but they've got time to hack a Twitter poll. By the way, maybe they are. He has no evidence whatsoever. Like, none. Scott throws it out there, makes it up. Major claim against a government. Anchor just rolls with it. At MSNBC, a guest offered this measured take on the whole situation. Watch. I'm absolutely disgusted. But what else do we expect from very white, privileged, cis, hetero men protecting each other? Because we always mistake wealth and inheritance for genius. So, yay, Elon Musk gets what he wants, his buddy back on the air, in order to finish burning down democracy while he finishes burning down the town square. Mm-hmm. Tech and white people again. Why is that allowed, by the way? Why can you just turn on MSNBC? White people, this! Is that okay? Is everyone all right with that? You can just like single out a racial group and attack them because of their skin color? I thought that was wrong. Didn't we have a whole civil rights movement about that? Apparently not. Vince Colonnese is a big time radio host in D.C. and a very wise person. He joins us tonight. So are you for democracy, Vince? Does that mean that presidential candidates get to talk in public or no? But, you know, for all the screeching the left does to us about democracy, it's amazing how much they go completely catatonic if an opposing viepoint breaks through to a big audience. That is they hate nothing more than that. If somebody's opposing viewpoint. So so Kanye West says that he's against abortion. They go crazy. Uh, if Donald Trump might have an opportunity to tweet again, he hasn't even tweeted yet, by the way. If he might have an opportunity to do that, they go absolutely looney tunes. And the reason for that is that their ideas are so thin and independent defensible, that they realize that like, they don't want to engage in a debate on any of this. If you've been wondering, why has the left gotten so crazy? It's because they've created this airtight echo chamber where no opposing viewpoints ever break their way in. Otherwise, these ideas would be battle tested. And that's how you end up with, oh, we've got to mutilate children. Oh, Joe Biden can control the weather if we only give him more power. Oh, the Russians stole the 2016 election, tried to do it in 2020, and just voted in Elon Musk's Twitter poll. It, this is all left-wing delusions that are fed by 
by their intellectual flabbiness created by this environment where no opposing viewpoints are allowed to break through. That's, that's such a wise point. And maybe I'm too literal. I know that I am. But how can you, in the same sentence, use the word democracy and then go on to say that a political candidate can't speak? How can you have a democracy with no free speech? That can't happen. By definition, you can't have that. Correct. These are all authoritarian impulses. Because, yes. because look at what happened just a few weeks ago. You had Joe Biden step up to a microphone. He was asked, hey, what about Twitter? Are you going to assess? Uh, are you going to investigate them? And he's like, you know, we should probably do that. The federal government should look into the foreign business dealings of Twitter. What? The guy who is credibly accused of being bought off by Ukrainian and Communist Party of China interests is standing up there lecturing us about how we, we have to invest whether or not Elon Musk is bought and paid for. The guy is allowing conversation, not foreclosing it. Yeah. So I, I hear that uh, Twitter is breaking down, that Twitter's on its last legs, but uh, Twitter, as far as I'm aware, has never been better in the last six years. Uh, Steve Samuels getting a ton of new followers. I, I see a lot of good things. We've done Twitter. the climate. You remember the water fountains, carbon on one side, climate on the other. Well, he's going to make good on that. Reparations for the climate. But guess who's paying reparations? Not everybody. Not everybody. We'll tell you. Okay, thank you, Tucker Carlson. What's your experience of, of Twitter like? To me, it's gotten gotten better. I love uh, people getting back on. Donald Trump having his account reinstated. Fashion show. I mean, he just. Uh, yeah. He, he did um, also make a uh, a gospel album, which I guess that's something a lot of Christians mm. would like. He was going to get the religious right vote. Um, Matt Kanye West. You imagine them, you know, being fanatic of Trump. And like Paula White doing this, like, hookah, hookah, they're coming from South America, hookah, hookah, they're coming from Africa, hookah, hookah. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but that's actually an accurate quote. <laughs> uh, think of how nuts they would go over Kanye. Yeah, I certainly like, don't imagine like, voting. I don't imagine them voting for Kanye over Trump, but if it was like Kanye versus DeSantis, I can imagine Kanye sweeping that thing. I could kind of imagine them. I, I, I like this. I, I could, yeah. who, whoever suggested this, this is yeah. what you did, I think. It, you <laughs> kind of, because I was asking, I was like, who is it? Who's that dark horse? And Lo and behold, it's, it's Kanye. Yeah, I, I oh. yeah, yeah, excuse me. Um, one name on the president. Wow, that just makes too much sense. Really? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's this uh, prevailing narrative, like I said before, in, in a CRT, which I tend to follow, that uh, this is kind of like an age of like the of like the racist non-whites, of like mm -hmm. multiracial whiteness, where like you have these like non-whites who are kind of like proxies for white, for like quote-unquote white interests, who like kind of like, you know, personify the racism and bigotries of, of the white population, who they can now like, you know, support, now having like, you know, the plausible deniability of not being racist because this person's not white. God, this guy's yeah. got a horrible voice. Yes. Mm. So That's I, crazy enough to make sense. As an aside, I think they'll become funny. I think the conservative movement, and you're kind of seeing this in Britain too with the uh, this new Indian prime minister. These like base axes are trying to be very pragmatic, very like non ideological. So they tend to wiggle their way up to the hierarchy very well. I think eventually in 10 years, like, you know, most conservative organizations will be ran by non whites, essentially grifting uh, the stupid white population. But yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably accurate. And um, uh, I, I do think that like the GOP is going to fundamentally change the conservative movement. It's going to be affected by this. I mean, I just mentioned that before. In 2012, Romney said, you know, Russia is our greatest strategic adversary or, or something like that. And, and actually, Barack Obama was more down to earth and kind of reasonable about that and said, well, you know, um, uh, you know, we, we need to get over the Cold War grandpa, basically. And you fast forward a decade and there's more Russian sympathetic sentiment, not just kind of anti-war sentiment, or something, Russia sympathetic sentiment in the GOP. So things they actually can go off the reservation. They can really transform. And so I, I think this the Kanye stuff, it's, it's that kind of crazy racism that's kind of plausibly deniable. You know, like it's 
you know, I'm not, how can I be racist? I'm black, but also how can I be anti-Semitic? I'm in fact a Jew. It, it's just making Kanye, his running mate would unironically boost his campaign and give him that juice that he had in 2016. No question. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Kanye from there, you know, yes. becomes just president. Just for the record, I'm out. Like I'm not on board basically, but uh, just, just if anyone thinks that that's what I'm, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm leading to, but uh, yeah, I just think, wow, this is really an interesting prognostication. They're going to have to tap in to that. They, they, I mean, it fits with my general thesis, which is that you need to tap into the, the id. You, you need to tap, you, you need to like, Clarice Starling has to go visit Hannibal Lecter in order to solve the case. Like you, you need to go there. And how are they going to do that? Maybe Trump can't do it on its on his own anymore. Yeah, you need to kind of look them in the eyes and kind of see where the wind is blowing. Yes. All right, let me let some other people speak. Um, uh, Wackaloid. Hello, Richard? Yes, hi. Hey, I was thinking, um, what is your, if you don't mind me asking, what is your personal plan to deal with the so-called browning of America? Is it just use wealth to insulate yourself, live in kind of white areas, or is that still even an issue that that, um, you concern yourself with? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I'm just really not interested in this kind of stuff anymore. He's not interested in, in the browning of America. It was like a major concern of his. He became famous for his concern about this, but just not interested in this kind of stuff anymore. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. I've been out of the loop for a while, so I'm not exactly sure where you stand on this stuff. Okay. All right. Thanks. But also, um, Aaron? Uh, yes. So kind of to build off his point, I was curious what you learned from the Pat Buchanan interviews that you gave a while back, and maybe the Bowden ones might overlap a little. Well, I don't think those overlap much. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, what did I learn from them? Um, I probably learned more by reading Pat's book than speaking with him. I mean, he's a very gracious guy and um, a very intelligent guy. Um, I think Pat was almost, you know, to go back to even some of these comments that Fuentes made or something, I, I almost think Pat is too much of an intellectual to be a populist. You know, like, Pat is a very intelligent man. Pat does... I, I think his, his, you know, he came in with the Nixon administration in his 20s. I mean, he kind of leans in that direction. And I don't think Pat ever tapped into the crazy. Pat would make really reasonable arguments about trade and immigration and culture. And he would get a bit edgy. But, you know, the 1992 RNC convention speech, you know, we'll take, you know, they took back Los Angeles block by block. And that's how we'll take back America. I mean, okay, it's it's passionate. It's a bit edgy, but it just, it doesn't tap into the, total lunacy uh, that Trump was able to tap into with the alt-right, with QAnon, with Stop the Steal, with all of it. Um, he just never was able to do that. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, that, that's kind of my takeaway. But, you know, I, I think Pat is, is probably most interesting writing about history and um, kind of making it come alive uh, or even writing about his own career. Um, okay. Lloyd George knew my father. Wow. Uh, you are up. Oh, um, to sort of go off what you said about Pat Buchanan, uh, Buchanan, I think the big difference between Buchanan and like why Trump succeeded where he didn't was that Trump was able to appeal to the sort of socially moderate uh, voters who who might have agreed with Buchanan on immigration and trade, but not so much on the culture war stuff. But obviously, with with abortion being more of an issue now, and and Trump leaning more into the crazy populist right, I, I think that's that sort of radical centrism or what some people call middle American radicalism. Uh, that's the base of support for Trump is somewhat somewhat diminished and i think that's sort of the main 
tension yeah, in I what mean, you but that's 2016. I mean, yeah, I, I do think that there was in, in the in the RNC and going into the election, there was a kind of Sam Francis quality to Donald Trump. Um, I mean, in his book, The America We Deserve, I believe is the title of it. I mean, he came out in favor of national health care. Um, there was an interesting moment where they, I think uh, Ivanka mentioned uh, extending family leave for women and so on. I mean, there, there was some very interesting kind of pragmatic talk. You know, at the RNC, I don't think he mentioned abortion, although maybe he did. But it was in passing and it wasn't really salient. La at least what I saw, I watched 30 to 45 minutes of the Trump speech. I don't think he mentioned abortion at all. And yet that's his ultimate legacy. I mean, the, the thing about Trumpism that is lasting is the end of Roe v. Wade. Nothing else is. So if he's now running as like a sleepy version of what he was doing in 2016, I mean, again, I don't, I don't really think that can win. Um, you know, I, as I've been saying, I, I think he needs to dial up the crazy. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you make an interesting point, but I, I, I do think that that, like the middle of the, the, Richard wants uh, Donald Trump to dial up the crazy. He says that's the only way that Republicans can win by dialing up the crazy. I just think uh, Richard's past in theatrical productions, you know, directing theater, maybe getting the best of his political analysis here. Republicans win by making crime, disorder, you know, contagion, filth, uh, woke hysteria, nonsense, you know, the transsexual hysteria making these prominent issues. I think that's a you know, very solid, non-crazy basis for running and, and winning elections. Reasonable middle American radical is, is kind of a dying breed. Um, whites in the suburbs and whites who live in urban areas are going to the Democratic Party. Uh, it's a slow but sure transition. The multiracial working class coalition that Trump wants to create, and that did create, um, they want you dial the crazy up to 11, man. That's what they want. That's how you motivate them. That's how you win. If I may interject. Sure, go ahead. Gay partisan. Yeah. Just want to say, first of all, like, um, hi, Richard. And hi. Um, seriously, like, the whole talk about immigration, it's just, just upsets me because I came to the United States as a refugee from Saudi Arabia. And I had represent myself and so to anyone who out there who thinks that america has open borders yeah you're wrong and okay i think that will do it i'm about ready to go on another walkabout talk to you later bye bye